0: we walk by faith and not by sight. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Those words from scripture and many, many more like them, remind us over and over that this life is the hard part, but that God has prepared something for us far beyond what we can imagine. Often, whenever we are suffering, it feels like we're alone, like we're the only ones stuck in the valley. Everyone else's life seems normal, but not ours. We are grieving We are anxious, we are angry, afraid, confused, and seemingly alone. And even now, when in a sense we are all in this thing together, we're all suffering together in some sense, you may still feel alone in your particular circumstances. Perhaps you've lost your job or been furloughed or uh, had to take a pay cut. Maybe you have been all but cut off from a vulnerable family member that you want to be able to care for but are not able to see. Maybe your workload feels like it has doubled or tripled while everyone else seems to have all kinds of extra time on their hands. Whatever it may be, whatever your situation you find yourself in, my hope is that the text we'll be looking at this morning in Romans chapter 8, verse 17 will be an encouragement to you as it focuses our attention on three truths. And here they are. Number one, if you are a Christian, that means you are a child of God. And as a child of God, you are an heir of God. Number two, suffering is a normal and necessary part of the Christian life. And number three, God has promised unimaginable glory for you. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 8, and verse 17. And I just want to say before I read the text, how grateful I am for the way the Lord has prepared the way for us in these sermons over the last several weeks. I had been preaching through the book of Romans for over a year and took a break for a several-week series Uh, leading up to Easter, before we knew we would be uh, all at home and not able to be at church, before we knew uh, how the coronavirus was going to affect all of us, and that series of sermons leading up to Easter was just what we needed, to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, and I I could not have planned that. And now when that as that series has ended and we're coming back to the book of Romans and picking up our study in Romans chapter 8 verse 17 there is no place that I would rather be preaching from in this season and there's no verse that would be better for us to pick this up in than in verse 17 Romans chapter 8 is the most explosively hope-filled chapter anywhere in the Bible. And I hope that you'll see this morning and over the next several weeks why I'm so grateful and so excited to be preaching from this part of the Bible at this particular time. So let me read for us Romans 8, verse 17, and then we'll dig in. Paul says, and if children, that is, if we are children of God, then heirs Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here's the first truth in this passage. If you are a child of God, then that makes you an heir of God. See, Romans chapter 8, so far has been focusing on the privileges that come with being in Christ. So in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has taken our wrath. He has taken our punishment. He has taken our sins upon himself and absorbed all the wrath of God against our sin and our place, and so there's no condemnation for us. We are fully forgiven. And not only that, but he says that in Christ we now have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, has come and taken up residence within us. And he says not only is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, this is in verse 9 and 10 and 11, But because the spirit of the God who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in us, that means God will also raise us from the dead just as he raised Jesus. And now he says in verse 15 and 16 and 17 that uh, by the spirit of God we have been adopted into God's family. And we are now children of God. And by the Spirit, he says in verse 15, we are able to cry out to God, Abba, Father. So in Christ, by the Spirit, we now have the privilege of calling God our Father. Now that's important because sometimes people say that we are all children of God. Now, In one sense, that's true, in the sense that God has made all of us. We are all His creatures. We're all made in the image of God. That's true. But when the Bible uses the language children of God, it's not talking about everybody God made. The children of God are those who have been adopted into God's family through the death and resurrection of Jesus by the work of the Spirit. In other words, You're not a child of God unless you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, unless you have been born again, unless you have been uh, filled by the Spirit of God. So if you're not a Christian, for these things to be true of you that we're going to talk about, first you have to recognize your sin and your need of a Savior. You need to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God who took your place on the cross, died, for our sin and uh, rose from the dead, and you must turn from your sin and trust in Him in order to be a child of God. But if you are a child of God, if you have trusted in Christ, if you do belong to Jesus, then not only is there no condemnation for you, not only is the Spirit dwelling inside of you, not only do you have the promise of resurrection, not only do you have the privilege of calling God Father. But Paul now also says in verse 17 that if we're children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. In other words, our inheritance comes to us from God, or you could even say our inheritance is God himself. Both of those things are true. Let's start with the second one. Our inheritance is God himself. The whole Bible is filled with this longing and anticipation for us to be in relationship with God, in fellowship with God, to get to see God's face, to get to see His glory. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and were removed from God's presence, the whole Bible has been building toward the climax in Revelation 21 and 22 where we get to be in God's presence and see Him face to face. So in one sense, God himself is our inheritance. What we have been promised and what we are longing for is to be in the presence of God. But there's another sense in which God is going to give us an inheritance. And uh, we see this even more clearly when it says, not only are we heirs of God, but we are fellow heirs with Christ. See, Christ is the unique son of God, the eternal Son of God, and we are adopted sons of God. So later in Romans chapter 8, um, verses 28 and 29, Paul is going to talk about how God's plan is for Jesus, our elder brother, the unique Son of God, to be surrounded by a host of brothers who have been made like him. That's us, the adopted children of God. And so we, in some sense, are going to share in the inheritance that God the Father has given to Christ, God the Son. So what inheritance is that? What what is Jesus going to inherit, and what are we going to share with him as fellow heirs? Well, Hebrews 1-2 says that God appointed Jesus, the Son, the heir of all things. And all there means all. Everything belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the heir of everything. And if Jesus is the heir of everything, and we inherit with Jesus, then that means we are the heirs of everything. Now, does that mean everything, everything? Yeah, everything, everything. Look at what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians three twenty-one to 23. He says, Let no one boast in men, For all things are yours. Now, Paul, in this uh, situation in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with people who are squabbling over, uh, you know, which is their favorite pastor and who they follow and what team they're on and everything. And, And in order to sort out all that division and squabbling, he says, look, all things are yours. And he goes on and says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So Paul says, there's no reason to be fighting over who your favorite pastor is, who your favorite Bible teacher is, what team you're on, who's got this, who's got that, because everything belongs to you. In Christ, you inherit the world, life, death, the present, the future. All things are yours. Your inheritance is greater than anything you have ever imagined. Jesus said something similar in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. Paul says the same thing about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. That he was promised by God that he would be the heir of the world. So you may be poor in the world's eyes. You may be wondering how you're going to survive this Pay cut or job loss, or how you can stay retired after the economic downturn and what's happening to the economy and the stock market. but don't lose sight of this. You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. You are an heir, in other words, of the universe. All things are yours because you are His. And because you are his child, not only is he going to take care of you in the future when you receive this inheritance, he will take care of you now, just as he promised. He's not going to prepare for you this enormous inheritance and then abandon you in your trial in the present. He will be with you and he will provide for you, just as the Bible promises that He will. So we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, but that doesn't mean everything is going to be easy for us. There are plenty of people that would take a verse like that and say, See, the Bible says you ought to be rich. You ought to have a prosperous life. Everything ought to be going great for you. And if it's not going great for you, you must not have faith. You must not be believing the promises. You must not be trusting God. But if you just keep reading the verse, you recognize pretty quickly that's not true. That's not what the verse means. Because yes, we are heirs of God, and yes, we are fellow heirs with Christ. But belonging to Christ doesn't only mean we get to be heirs. It also means we join Him in His suffering. Look at verse 17 again. He says, "...if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ..." Provided we suffer with him, Jesus' life was not one of material prosperity, right? He had no place to lay his head. He was not wealthy. He did not come from or was not born into a wealthy family. Jesus lived a life of suffering. He was opposed, he was persecuted, he was poor. And he gave up his life in an act of extreme suffering out of love for his people. And he told his disciples and told us that if we are going to follow him, we are going to have to suffer too. We are going to have to lose some things and lay down some things too. He told us that if we want to be his disciples, we will have to take up our cross and follow him. It is not going to be easy. He told us that since the world has hated him, it's going to hate us too. People who opposed Jesus are going to oppose those who follow Jesus and who trust Jesus. So if we are following Christ, we're going to suffer with him. We're going to endure the opposition of the world and All kinds of suffering. What kind of suffering do you think Paul has in mind in particular here? Obviously when we think of suffering with Jesus, we think of the persecution and oppression and and suffering and even death that he endured. But is that the only kind of suffering that Paul has in mind here? Because not all of us experience uh, that kind of suffering, that kind of persecution or opposition. So what kind of suffering does he have in mind? Well, Often, if we have a question when we're reading the Bible, the best way to get the answer is just to keep reading. Right? So if we keep reading into verse 18 and, and down to verse 24 or 25, what we'll see is that Paul is talking about the sufferings that all of us experience as we live in a fallen world. He says in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, what what suffering of this present time? Well, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility... Right? Verse 21, the creation itself one day is going to be set free from its bondage to corruption. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So what kind of suffering is he talking about? He's talking about the suffering, both the everyday kind and the extreme kind, that we experience as people living in a fallen world, living in a creation, in a world that has been subjected to futility uh, because of the curse that God pronounced on the earth in the wake of Adam's sin. So the fact that our bodies get sick and grow old and break down and die, the fact that people get cancer, uh, the, all, the fact that sometimes we have to Uh, work and sweat and labor just to put food on the table. All those things that cause suffering and angst and, and all those things, all that kind of suffering is wrapped up in what Paul is talking about in verse 17. So it's not just the persecution kind that Jesus suffered and Paul suffered and Christians all over the world, all throughout church history have suffered. That's included but so is the everyday suffering. And sometimes the extreme suffering that no particular person is bringing upon us, but that has come upon us as a result of living in this fallen world, living under this curse. All that suffering counts if we are enduring it while we are following and trusting Jesus. We are suffering with Him... Whatever kind of suffering we're experiencing, we are suffering with him if we are experiencing that suffering while we are following Jesus and trusting in Jesus. So, none of us want to suffer, right? But none of us are exempt from it either. And though it is unpleasant, it should not be surprising to us that we suffer. In fact, Paul says here it's a necessary part of our experience, of our lives as Christians, that we suffer while we follow Jesus. But that's only part of the story. We suffer with him, he says in verse 17, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, it, remember, Jesus' suffering was not the end. If you look over at Philippians 2, and you don't have to turn there right now, but if you look at Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11... Paul gives us this beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. That he was in heaven, right? the Son of God, always existed. He's always been God, the second person of the Trinity. But he willingly left heaven, was born as a man, humbled himself, was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. So he experienced all this humiliation and suffering. But then, it says, On account of all that, therefore, God has highly exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, Jesus' life follows this pattern of suffering and humility, and then there's a turn, right, where he is exalted and glorified. And Paul is saying, We, if we belong to Christ, if we follow Christ, we are going to follow the same pattern. We are going to suffer for a season. We're going to experience hardship for a time. But if we experience that suffering with Christ, we will also be glorified with Christ. This is the pattern we see all over the Bible, not only in the life of Jesus. But think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember Joseph who was given the fancy coat because his father loved him so much and his brothers despised him and they threw him into a pit and they thought about killing him but they decided to make some money off of him instead so they sold him as a slave. He was carried off to Egypt or he became a slave in Potiphar's house and then he was thrown in jail because of a false accusation. But then in due time, he was raised up to second in command in Egypt. He experienced all this suffering and humiliation before he was exalted and raised up. Same thing happened to King David. Remember, David was the least of his brothers, but he was the one God had chosen to be the next king after Saul. So he was anointed as the king, but he didn't get to assume the throne because Saul was still on the throne. And what did Saul do? Saul tried to kill David, he persecuted him, he chased him from place to place, hunting him down like a criminal. And it was not until after Saul died that David was exalted to the, to the throne. So he too suffered, like Jesus, like Joseph, his life followed the same pattern. He suffered before he was exalted, and Paul is saying that pattern, the pattern you see ultimately in Jesus But Jesus was fulfilling a pattern that is all throughout the scripture in Joseph, in Moses, you can see it in Paul as well. That pattern is the pattern that our lives will follow. Yes, we will suffer, but if we endure that suffering, we will also be glorified with Jesus just as we have suffered with Jesus. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that we're going to be in the same place as Jesus. He's unique. He's the Son of God. He's the highest one. So what does it mean that we will be exalted or glorified with Him? Well, it means that we will be resurrected as He was. In Philippians 3.21, Paul says that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. It also means that we will be transformed into Jesus' likeness as Jesus has been glorified, as he shines with the glory of God. 1 John 3 says that we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It means also that we will reign with Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.12 puts it this way, if we endure, we will also reign. Reign with Him. And Jesus says it this way in Revelation 3.21. To the one who conquers. That means the one who endures to the end. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. So one day soon, one day soon, all the suffering and uncertainty of this life is going to be left behind And will be swallowed up in the fullness of glory. So hold on, brothers and sisters. Stay faithful. Keep following Jesus in the valley. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. God has made you his heir, and he will not leave you or forsake you. He will not forget you or fail to meet your needs. Your suffering has not caught him by surprise, nor should it catch you and I by surprise. This is the path that we must follow. But at the other end, there is glory and beauty and joy forevermore when we see our Savior face to face. That is why Paul can say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of, that is to be revealed to us. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your words would give us hope and strength and endurance for whatever uh, we may be suffering, whatever trials we may be enduring, whatever hardships we may be facing. God, let the promise of glory with Jesus in your presence forever sustain us and strengthen us to walk through this valley knowing that you are with us and you have prepared for us something better than we can even begin to imagine. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.